You are listening to episode number 17 of Rexperts, a recommender systems expert, where we discuss the application and research in recommender systems, talking to experts from industry and academia. I am Marcel Kurowski, data scientist and Rexis enthusiast, and I'm your show host. I hope you enjoyed this show, and I'd be happy if you support it. Doing this is very easy and straightforward. Subscribe to Rexperts on your favorite podcast player, leave a rating, and follow me on LinkedIn. This is the easiest way to support me and this project. Thank you. If you seek more details on our discussions, check out the episode show notes. There you can find a rich compilation of papers, blog posts, guest information, talks, and more for each episode, along with the episode's transcript. If you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have on my show, or any other suggestions, reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter, or contact me via email at marcel at rexperts.com, that is M-A-R-C-E-L at R-E-C-S-P-E-R-T-S dot com. And now off to my conversation with Miguel Fierro from Microsoft. A lot of companies, they claim that they have a recommender system, and then you start scratching in the surface and they don't. I don't think there are many technological solutions that have this super extreme high ROI. You know, when you have a lot of talented people, kind of, a lot of times people have strong opinions on how the code should be done or whether we should use a class or a function, you know, there are some intense discussions about that, right? We found a solution to that problem. And I think that was like the main driver of the success of recommenders because the result is that we had a lot of talented people that could work together on the same direction, a constitution. So that's what we created. We created a law. Our law was that all of us, all the contributors and recommenders, had to behave in a certain way. In our view, the best way is when you have something that works and then adapt it to your problem, right? So that's why we have so many examples, right? Like almost no matter what problem you have in recommendation system, you're going to find there five to ten different notebooks that hopefully what, what you can do is, you know, you can run the notebook, see if it works, and then just remove the data set that you see there and put your data set and then start iterating. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Rexperts, a recommender systems experts. Today I have invited Miguel Fierro as my guest and we will be talking about Microsoft recommenders and also a bit about most recent developments in generative AI and what Miguel's view is in terms of these most recent developments and especially about Microsoft recommenders. To give you a brief introduction, Miguel Fierro is a principal data scientist manager working at Microsoft, where he is leading the personalization team. And this is not his only duty or work, but he is also an adjunct professor at the IE University, 
Miguel Fierro has obtained a master's degree in robotics and automation, which is actually the topic where he obtained his PhD, which he has gotten from the King's College in London, also in robotics. And he has done several publications at, for example, KDD, DubDubDub and the Neurips. So hello and welcome to the show, Miguel. Hi, hi, Marcel. It's nice to see you. And yeah, happy to happy to have a conversation about recommendation systems. Yeah, I'm happy that you that you joined the crowd because I see you very often posting very interesting insights that you share on LinkedIn. So you are very active there sharing your thoughts, giving advice to people, uh, also how to keep up with the most recent developments. And um, yeah, I really like to to see your thoughts and what you are sharing there. Um, can you share with us actually who are you and how did you get into recommender systems? Yeah, well, um, I would say I'm a, a very curious person. Uh, probably that's a very good way of defining me. Uh, I studied uh, engineering. Uh, my undergrad was electrical engineering. And when I was finishing that degree, uh, I realized that I didn't like it. So uh, kind of wasted some years of my life. And then uh, I was kind of, uh, at the end of the degree, everybody had to do a, a final degree project, right? And typically, the normal thing is, is people do the final degree project in their area of expertise. That for me would be electricity. But I thought electricity was not really very interesting for me. So I was finding other uh, possibilities. And I went to the Department of Robotics. And um, I kind of fell in love with robotics and AI. And that's, that's where I did uh, you know, my master PhD. And then I, I did a couple of startups. And, I, and, and you know, later, I ended up at, at Microsoft. And it was kind of when I was doing the transition between startup and, and Microsoft that I started working on, on recommendation systems. The startup I had was Visual Recommender. So we had a SaaS solution that uh, you could take a picture of a, of a garment uh, on the street and, and it would recommend what is the most similar garment in a catalog of a, of a retailer. That was kind of my first experience with recommendation systems. And then when I got to Microsoft, I also started working on, on recommendation systems. One of the things we did is uh, recommenders repository that uh, is you know it's got a lot of uh, a good number of of star uh, big attention and a lot of contributions from really talented people and yeah i would say that's that's kind of my my path to to the area oh okay i see so you basically started out with fashion recommendations yeah. uh, one could say and then delved into other areas of recommender systems i mean uh, microsoft as a whole is engaged in so many different areas where you can personalize your products with the help and support of recommender systems. So uh, which other domains and areas have you encountered during your path besides that very start on, on fashion recommendations? It's very interesting because during my time at Microsoft, I've been working in, in I could say, two big areas. One is, you could call it technical sales. And technical sales is that we go to customers, typically large, large customers, 
and mm-hmm. we help them to build solutions on Azure. And, and mm-hmm. my team precisely, we help them build recommendation systems on Azure. And, and we work from media companies to uh, big retailers, some of the big retailers, also gaming, the gaming industry as well. Yeah, I would say these three is the three that we made more recommendations, and particularly in, in retail, probably the, where we had the, the biggest impact. And then also, um, mm-hmm. then I moved to, people call it engineering, which is basically you create internal products for Microsoft. And then mm-hmm. I worked on some internal products related to e-commerce, so retail as well, and also gaming. So actually, you know, Oh, These three probably are the, the strongest. So quite a broad set of very different domains and also with all their specifics. I mean, recommenders are not always only the generic set of algorithms that you have, but you also need to incorporate a lot of domain expertise, domain knowledge to kind of tailor them to the corresponding domain. Yeah. So what is it actually that that made you so fascinated about uh, recommender systems? Because I, I do get somehow that you were in the very beginning very enthusiastic about uh, robotics, kind of driven from being dissatisfied with electrical engineering in itself. And then at some point there was some kind of, a, of another switch. Was, was AI kind of the bridge uh, leading you from let's say robotics into the field of recommender systems yeah. and then you switched only let's say one part or what is it that made you hey personalization uh, that's it <laughs> yeah so um i would say like you know first of all robotics is super broad right like you have the mm-hmm. mechanics of robotics or the electronics and also you obviously you have the ai right which is the kind of how the robot moves or behaves etc right when i was even when I was doing my, my PhD, I was more focused on, on the AI part. So maybe you, I would say mm-hmm. 80% was, or 85% was AI versus uh, a little bit electronics and, and almost nothing related to mechanics. So I already mm-hmm. kind of was leaning more towards AI, but I particularly like this applicability and usability, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the nice thing of a robot is, you know, you do some programming, and at the end, you have a robot that moves, right? Also in AI, a lot of the time you, you have that, right? Like you create um, a recommendation system and, and you can provide a better experience to the users, right? Another thing mm-hmm. that was very interesting, uh, also I have my entrepreneurship background. So this, this ability to kind of, I would say that in AI, you, you can do two things. You can either, in terms of economic value, you can either increase revenue or you can reduce costs, right? A lot of the time, many of the AI solutions are kind of reducing costs, right? For example, you know, Chad GPT, okay. you know, if you, if you had a, a, you're a company and you had a call center and you had a lot of people, you know, doing a repetitive task of, of calling, et cetera, mm-hmm. then you can have a bot that, you know, can do it all the time and, and then these people, maybe they can yeah. go to high level jobs, right? In that situation, you are reducing costs, right? And a lot of people, a lot of things related to computer vision, to forecasting, to NLP, a lot of them are related to reducing costs. And reducing costs is mm-hmm. something that 
I mean, uh, the finance people, they, it's not the best thing, right? Because, you know, using costs, you always have a limit and it's very problematic. The best thing you can always have mm -hmm. is increase revenue. Uh, that's the best thing. Because the sky is the limit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of, right? Like, I mean, like, maybe the limit is, is, the, is the human population, right? But I mean, like, yeah, the limit yeah. is very, very high. So our recommendation, mm -hmm. our recommendation solution is actually one of the few AI systems that can increase revenue. And another thing that is, is very, very important, and this is one of the biggest hurdles that we had in, in my team and, and in general uh, in, in technical teams, is what we call the dependency. So dependencies are uh, when you create a, an ML solution, sometimes you are dependent on some other technology. Just an example. So let's say you create a churn solution. You want to identify churn or you want to segmentate customers in different groups, right? Now, what you want to do is you want to reduce churn, right? So you create your, your machine learning solution that uh, creates some segments of people. And then you need another system. So you have another dependency, which is the email marketing software that sends this email, right? And so you are dependent not only on the technology, but also on what you put in this email, right? The problem is that there is no direct path from the churn identification that you build with value, right? Whereas in Reco, you have a direct path, right? So you have a marketplace, you basically put different items for each individual, and then the person buys or doesn't buy. So it's a direct, it's, it's completely direct. I guess a bit the difference between the, let's say, predictive nature of certain ML output versus the prescriptive nature of what we see with yeah. recommender systems where we directly intervene with the experience that users make. Exactly. Would you, would you say it like that? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that was one of the reasons why I got attracted because suddenly, you know, a lot of the success, the majority of the success relies on my team. I don't have to rely on, on different mm -hmm. things. And that, that's a massive advantage. And the other thing is, I remember there was a report by McKinsey around 10 years ago talking about the Amazon recommender. It's kind of famous. And they mentioned that 35% of the revenue in, the, in the Amazon.com comes from recommendations. That, that yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I mean, 35% of the revenue. Uh, I remember that I, I did the math because, you know, 35, obviously, people think it's a lot. But so 35 uh, when it was published, it was around 20-something, uh, 25 or 27 billion. Now it's around 100 billion. And the very interesting thing is that there's a massive ROI because you don't need tens of thousands of engineers to create this 100 billion. So I don't, there are, I don't think there are many technological solutions that have this super extreme high ROI. That's very interesting. Basically, you don't need the people to scale it. You need basically a good team of engineers, scientists that you work with, of people that are able to integrate and innovate. But then to scale it, basically, given your algorithms, your systems are actually designed in a scalable way, then it's about the compute and the storage that you need to throw it in. Uh, it's funny that you are bringing up that uh, study by McKinsey because I have uh, also seen several times uh, studies there in terms of personalization, the value of personalization that people are demanding it. And I'm always having difficulties to, to find finding the real root source of that 35%. 
when you brought it up, I actually uh, had to consider uh, that Fortune article that were somehow citing internals by Amazon, where they claimed to make a 29% sales increase within just one year by kind of integrating recommendations in almost every part of the purchasing and uh, yeah, buying process. So uh, yeah, definitely numbers that are in their, let's say, ballpark and um, might convince you that there's really uh, a growth. And I actually really like that perspective that you are bringing up versus uh, top line versus bottom line. So it's not that, let's say it's, it's, it's providing a value of reducing costs, but the opportunity is somehow limited, whereas it is not really as limited when it comes to increasing revenue. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, it's our main topic for this episode. And I'm really glad that uh, you joined uh, because um, as far as I have understood, you're the main person in charge of driving the Microsoft Recommender repository, which is a great collection of many algorithms. Can you give us some background of how uh, yeah. It came to that point and how you basically developed that repository and why it gained that much attraction. Yeah, so um, the background, the reason why we built this is because when we were working in, my team was working in customer uh, sales, technical sales, the, the way we work is that one or two of us will go to a customer and, and build a solution, right? And then it was very clear at the beginning that, you know, we were reinventing the wheel all the time. So we will go to customer A and then we will do our recommender from scratch and we won't share any code, right? We'll go to customer B, same thing. And then, you know, a couple of us will say, I don't know, guys, like, we, we should do some libraries so we can share instead of taking, I don't know, six months to or nine months to do a project, it should take us uh, three or whatever, right? And then around that time in my team we were doing a lot of uh, blogs and a, a lot of uh, you know pr and, and technical marketing right so we said okay can we publish this on open source and, and our leadership said yeah do it and what we did is at the beginning we wanted this to be a big effort not a, not an effort of, of our team because our team was kind of small right like the core contributors to recommenders i don't think over the years we we be more than than between five to eight something like that right but we needed more people mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. first of all the first thing we did is we partnered with a microsoft research there is a very very good team in in beijing mm -hmm. uh is the team of Xinxia. in my opinion he's one of the top researchers in recommendation systems so we partnered with them, mm -hmm. and also we we partnered with some other open source contributors. One that I think was he was the first person to agree to me to to kind of contribute external person of Microsoft is um, Nicholas Hag. He had a very famous at the time recommender framework called Surprise. Nicholas now is at Meta, mm -hmm. and and he is he's actually a contributor to Scikit-Learn. I think he also contributed to to Python. So it's I mean, like the guy is, is, is really good. And I remember he was the first person to actually, uh, outside Microsoft, to contribute to recommenders. He did a, a notebook with Surprise, actually, which is, you know, a framework that, that we see is very good. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was kind of the origin. But I think there is one very, very important thing, which is kind of the strategy that we use to, to build recommenders. And we, we spent a lot of time on the contribution guideline and how we contribute because in many technical teams and and this is i think this happens in in all companies in technical companies google microsoft metal amazon you know when you have a lot of talented people kind of a lot of times people have strong opinions on how the code should be done or 
whether we should use a class or a function. <laughs> there are some intense discussions uh-huh. about that, right? So we we found a solution. Yeah. We found a solution to that problem. And I think that was like the main driver of the success of recommenders because the result is that we had a lot of types of people that could work together on the same direction. So the thing is, this came from a, a, a podcast that I was reading about the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire is a very, mm-hmm. from the historical point of view, it's a very interesting time empire because it, it kind of, you know, rose and, and died, right? And the, the historian, the, the guy was, that was doing the podcast, he said that there, are, there were three reasons why the Roman Empire was so successful. The first one is talent. So they had the best warriors, right? And if you mm-hmm. think about the big tech companies, you know, it's kind of easy to get to attract talent, right? So all the t- tech companies, they have this, this piece. The other, the second thing in the Roman Empire is that they had like a mission. So they, they actually wanted to kind of Latinize uh, Europe and, and uh, expand and share the culture, etc. right? So that's kind of a common mission, all right? And again, in all these companies, mm-hmm. it's kind of easy to have a common mission, right? Like depending on the company, sometimes it's bottom up, sometimes it's, it's top down, I don't know. But it's kind of easy, right? So these two pieces are there. What mm-hmm. is the one that is missing? So. The one that was missing, the one in the Roman Empire that surprised me is that they had the law. So in the Roman Empire, law was mm-hmm. very, very important. Like everybody had to abide to the law. And then I thought that was the piece that was missing. We, ha- we needed a law. We needed a constitution. So that's what we created. We created a law. Mm-hmm. Our law was that all of us, all the contributors and recommenders had to behave in a certain way. And this is something that we all choose. We all agreed on, on this uh, way of working, right? So that, it completely changed the way we were because at the beginning, we were having a lot of discussions, a lot of meetings like, you know, where we were not making advance. And the moment we had this law and, and we agreed on, on how to behave and how to review pull requests between us and, and how to think about making decisions, suddenly mm-hmm. we were able to go super, super fast. So that was super, super important. And that's something that I was... Uh, included in many of, of my teams, in different teams. And I think that was super, super important for successful recommenders. Okay, so so this was kind of, let's say, uh, uh, there not really the turning point, um, but the point where it really accelerated since you were actually providing alignment within your team. So somehow internally at Microsoft work for the people working on that repo that you kind of derived from the demands of where you put into production recommender systems, seeing that there was a demand for making things more generic and thereby, of course, decreasing the effort that you needed to put into each and every time where there was another demand. So that kind of alignment allowed you to speed up, but also I would say to manage the complexity yeah. of the development process to a much better or a more efficient degree than it was before. And then was it that you shared or made public yes. that law, these guidelines with your open source community, or how did you actually enable this? Yeah, yeah, the guideline is, is there, it's, it's available. And I think a lot of teams, the way they operate is, is what some people call the benevolent dictator, right? The benevolent dictator typically is kind of the, the, the more senior engineer is kind of the person who, who kind of makes the final decision, right? Like that's how Python was developed. That, that was, that's how Linux was developed. Now, the problem is that 
you know, that's not a team, right? That's a leader that's, well, I'm not, that's a leader, but that's kind of the dictator that actually tells all the people what to do. In the approach that we took, we didn't have any leader. Like all of us were equal, right? But we all respected each other and trusted each other. So we were able to have, a, we really enjoyed the project because we, we were really thinking that all, all the contributors, uh, I think, believed that it was their project. It's, it's not like probably, you know, the contributors mm-hmm. to Linux or contributors to Python, I don't know to what degree they believe this their project, right? So what I wanted to achieve with this way of working mm-hmm. is that it's, it's, not, it's not my project or it's not the project of the four people that we started recommenders. It's more everybody is welcome to participate. Everybody will follow the rules. And, and no matter the experience, no matter the seniority, everybody follow the same uh, study. Okay, okay, I see. These rules, so how strict are they? What kind of level do they have uh, to guide people to behave or write code or design algorithms in a certain way in order to contribute to that repository? So they are not that strong, I would say. For example, one very important thing that a lot of people are not doing is how to make technical decisions, right? For example, one, one decision that was very tricky. We had in recommenders, we had code in Spark, in PySpark, and we had code in, in Python, right? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for those that don't know the difference, if you look at like the typical Python code is quite different to typical PySpark code. The PySpark code looks a lot like Java, mm-hmm. okay? So if, you are a, if you're a Python purist, right? If you're a Python purist, you'll say, no, 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 we're going to do everything uh, as Python, right? Because this is a Python library and we should do, we shouldn't do classes for everything, you know. And the way we decided is, okay, so instead of saying we're going to do a vote, which is what most people do, it's like, okay, so there are 10 people or, or 11, 12 people, let's raise their hand. What we said is, okay, who are we serving here? And we call this evidence-based design, okay? The thing is, who are we serving? Well. We mm-hmm. are serving the people that goes into recommenders and are the users of recommenders. They want to build recommendation systems. So we, we want to make the experience fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. So we stop thinking about what I, Miguel, personally like, right? And say, okay, what a person that starts with recommenders will like. And then we thought, okay, I guess if you're a PySpark developer, you are used to, to this specific java slash python way of doing things everything's a class etc so if you come to recommenders and everything is like python it's going to be really weird for you right so then we said okay then what we do is all the tools all the all the functions and classes related to pyspark they follow the pyspark naming and the, the pyspark structure whereas the rest they follow python right so the thing is when you have a a, a team and obviously depending on the on the members of the team, right? But you completely change the discussion from what I prefer to what your customer prefers, what the person you're serving prefers. And then it's like, it's mm-hmm. all about bringing evidence on what the customer wants. And then the, the, the discussion is completely sweet, right? It's like, okay, I, and then people will come and say, okay, I've seen, uh, you know, 
these customers doing this and these are the customers doing this. And then basically the only thing we do is just follow what they want. We give them what they want. That's a good example of, of something that we, we did. And I think it's completely different to what other people do. Okay, okay. So I've just gone through a bit of it and you are actually providing also a couple of quick start Jupyter notebooks where you are quickly guided through uh, an algorithm, its fundamentals and applying it to some certain data sets. So for example, the Amazon reviews or like people always know in recommender systems, the movie lens data set. And then you are applying it to it, evaluating its uh, performance in terms of several uh, retrieval metrics. And there I already have seen that uh, some of them require you to be having access to a Spark session or to fire up a Spark session and work in Spark um, with, of course, uh, the use of PySpark. Uh, but some other notebooks don't require this and have other dependencies and run in different, uh, let's say, environments or under different assumptions. So in there, it's not like that you provide, let's say, each environment for each algorithm but rather those which you kind of assessed are the most commonly used context for using a certain algorithm would it be a way of how to put it yeah 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 actually like the, the original recommenders it wasn't a, a big library right it was just the all the notebooks and the reason why we wanted to have notebooks is again because we were all the time thinking about our user we're thinking okay what is the best way for these people to, to start building recommendations. So in our view, the best way is when you have something that works and then adapt it to your problem, right? So that's why we have so many examples, right? Like almost no matter what problem you have in recommendation system, you're going to find there five to 10 different notebooks that hopefully what, what you can do is, you know, you can run the notebook, mm -hmm. see if it works, and then just remove the data set that you, you see there and put your data set. And then start iterating. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think that's another of the reasons why it was so successful because people start using it that way, right? Like they download recommenders and that's exactly what they did. Mm -hmm. And actually some of our customers, they, they kind of like that approach and actually say, hey, that's exactly, you know, that's, that's what we did. We had, uh, you had this data set that, that it was kind of a toy data set. And then we put our data set and we press run and then the thing ran and, And they're like, wow, that, now the next thing is how do we productionize that? And, you know, they were able to very, very quickly iterate and create a solution that worked. Okay, okay, I see. To provide our listeners a bit more uh, with what uh, it really looks like, so can you maybe quickly guide us through the structure of the repository and what's maybe contained in it? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that we have three big uh, pieces of content, right? Then... The first one is the um, mm -hmm. examples, which are all the notebooks. And, and then we have, all, I think, around 30 different mm -hmm. algorithms uh, on, uh, with different data sets. Sometimes it's the typical uh, user item interaction data set. Sometimes is you know, what you could find in an e-commerce where you have, uh, you have a user, you have product and details for the product or user and details of the user, right? Sometimes you have, examples for a text recommendation, like news recommendations. You can uh, use mm -hmm. text and, and yeah. So if people want to start recommenders, uh, you know, that's the first place that I will go. And then the other, the other two, the, the first one is the, the library. So all the functions are, uh, are not in the, in the notebooks, they are in a, in a library. So basically you can do pip install recommenders and, and you get the library. 
-hmm. And that's where, if you are a developer, that's where you put your algorithms and your utilities. And then the last one is the test. And again, the test is another reason why Recommenders has been so successful. We have around 900 tests that run almost every day. And the reason why we have, and, and we have a very, very sophisticated pipeline for, for MLLs and for testing. And the reason we wanted to, to have this really, really strong and really complex way of testing is because we wanted to make sure that every time they, uh, you know, like when people download the library, it, it worked. That's what we wanted to make sure. And yeah, that was that uh, having a, a very strong MLOps pipeline solves one of the most difficult problems in, in ML development and in development, which is the maintenance. The maintenance is very, very difficult because you need mm -hmm. constant manpower, right? So if you have a strong, a very, very strong test infrastructure, it's like, in my mind, it's like a wall, right? Like it's, it's, it's protecting you for bugs and it's protecting you to make sure that everything works. Yeah, makes your job far easier and also provides reliability for the users that kind of take advantage from using recommenders. Yeah, actually, in terms of the of the users, so do you have some insights of uh, who, besides uh, Microsoft internally, uh, is actually using recommenders, whether for, let's say, developing ideation or also actually in production? It's very funny because a lot of people mm -hmm. from top companies even some people that are competitors, like cloud uh, providers, they, they kind of fork our, our repo. And, and, you know, it's funny because uh, every now and then we, we go like, oh, look, this, these guys are, are forking, so maybe they are using it. Yeah, but I mean, like, the thing is, uh, this is an open source project and we don't have any telemetry inside, so we don't really know who, who is using The only thing we we can know is is the information that is provided by GitHub. We we don't really know who is using. It. I know I know mm -hmm. internally uh, there are many things on Microsoft that are using it. I know customers that I directly work with them that I know they are using it. But you know, uh, mm -hmm. every now and then it's funny. Every now and then uh, somebody uh, you know write to me on LinkedIn or is like, Hey Miguel, I'm, I'm working with recommenders and this thing. Uh, can you help me with this thing? It's like who are you? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've been working on this. We've been using this for two years. And it's like, wow, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. Okay, yeah, that definitely sounds great. I mean, uh, if you're sometimes very surprised about where it has made its way at and where it's being used and um, yeah. So maybe the other side, uh, which is sometimes also the same side as the users, but uh, talking a bit more about the contributors. So as far as I get from what you are saying is there are a couple of people at Microsoft who are actually working at their five to eight main contributors that you mentioned. Um, how is actually the reception in the um, community overall? So who is actually uh, contributing to it? What yeah. is kind of the structure? Is it just a main core of, of, of people contributing to it? But is it more commonly shared between non-Microsoft people and Microsoft people? Or what does it look like? Yeah, so right now, we actually ha uh, divide uh, people into two groups. One is what we call the maintainers. And the other group is what we call the contributors. So the maintainers are seven uh, mm -hmm. right now. And these are the people that can accept uh, PRs. Everybody can accept or, or review PRs or any contributor, but there are, the, you know, these seven people are, are 
the people that actually are looking up all the PRs, right? And then we have uh, contributors from, mm -hmm. you know, uh, outside Microsoft, for example, we have people from different universities. We have people from, you know, people that actually, you know, they were at Microsoft and now they are on other companies, even some, uh, you know, some competitors of, of us. Yeah, I would say that too. Like a lot of people from universities and, and then several people from other big tech and well, not that big tech, like just technical companies. Okay. Uh, in terms of um, organizing the uh, contributor community, so how do you decide whether you want to go with a new algorithm? So I guess the last time I did my count, I ended up counting 33 different algorithms and where you basically reference the source and uh, more of it in, in, in the notes uh, on the on the main readme. But how actually do you do you decide which new algorithms you want to onboard into the repository? Yeah, so I guess almost every time it was either somebody in our team that they said, okay, this this looks super interesting, let's let's add it. Or somebody external that kind of proposed something. The way it works is that anybody can provide any algorithm as long as it's not the same content, right? If you want to have another implementation of the same thing, then somehow you need to, uh, for example, improve what was there or, or maybe remove remove what was there and, and add the new contributor. So the, the only reason is because we want to make it simple for people, right? But yeah, anyone can add the algorithm that they want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We already touched on, rather implicitly touched on the scalability to a certain degree, because as we discussed, there are some of these algorithms uh, kind of tied to using Spark. But I have also seen that some of them are, let's say, GPU ready or something like that. Uh, so actually, how do you perceive the scalability across the board of algorithms? Would you say that all of them are ready to use and scale to, let's yeah. say, millions of customers uh, on your user base? I mean, it's, it's hard to say because it also depends on the so, amount of data that these customers generate, the window length that you look back. But what is your, your perception on the scalability of those algorithms and of the library in general? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. It's very interesting because intuitively people will think that a recommendation system is, is a problem where you have a lot of data. Right? So it's either Spark or GPU, this sort of training, or maybe multiple GPUs, multi-node or you know, something like that, right? In reality, what, you know, what we found is that there are not that many customers, at least in, like, in our experience, right? Like, like we said, there are not that many customers with huge amounts of data, like very, very few, very, very few. We had some customers that they had like a ridiculous amount of, of data and and then, you know, it, it becomes challenging, you know, data engineering or, or machine learning engineer, like how to deploy this thing, how to train with an algorithm that is fast enough to accommodate this amount. But most of the time with a small Spark cluster or even a, a CPU, Uh, machine or even a GPU machine with, with a reasonably big GPU, maybe just one GPU or maybe one of these clusters that have four GPUs, that's, that's enough.
Pierre, uh, talking about, let's say, data-intensive machine learning algorithms, I mean, with Microsoft, along with OpenAI, you are at the forefront of a bunch of most recent innovative breakthroughs, especially tied to generative AI with ChatGPT and large growth of large language models. What is your perception on the impact that large language models and all these most recent developments are having on recommender systems, but also on models in specific? Um, so what do you think is going to change or how do things need to change to adapt? Yeah, that, that's very interesting because there are people around my team and kind of close people. There are different uh, different views, right? And maybe I can comment on, on both views. There is one view that, and I've seen some papers where you have something like GPT-4 mm -hmm. and then you transform the recommendation problem to text. Mm -hmm. and, and, and something as simple, imagine something as simple as, you know, Miguel, uh, who has this profile, this, 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 bought this item, who is this product with this price with, you know, like, It's mm -hmm. kind of, imagine you, you take the data set and just put it together, right? And that's the information that you give to GPT-4, to the LLM. Mm -hmm. And then you say, recommend uh, similar products. And actually, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you need to do some tricks in terms of memory. Actually, you know, right now, uh, GPT-4 has uh, in the, I think, 30,000 30, or 30,000 token space, right? So it's, it's a, mm -hmm. a huge number of tokens. So you can actually add a lot of information there and that's the recommender right like mm -hmm. and and i've seen some papers where that approach uh, looks and works very well there is another very similar approach there, there is a nlp uh, network by google that is called t5 mm -hmm. and uh, some researchers they did a version applied to recommendation system and i think they call it p5 And it's kind of the, the idea is kind of the same. Basically, you take the data of your recommender and kind of somehow put it in, in text form and just use the LLM to, to predict, to recommend, right? And that is mm -hmm. the approach. And I think we're going to see more and more uh, this approach, right? Like just use pure LLMs as a recommender. Mm -hmm. And then we have the other point of view that they say that is, is not enough. Actually, some of the arguably the best researcher in, in, my, in the team, in the recommender's team, Actually, ask, I asked him this question and, and he was not very convinced uh, of this approach, of the just LLM approach. Mm -hmm. And he believes that it's going to be more like a combination of the backbone of, of the LLMs, like the attention mechanism, mm -hmm. plus maybe the GNNs, the graphical neural networks. Graphical neural networks for record is, is very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And maybe the extra information through knowledge graph. Actually, we have some... And networks that are knowledge graph aware. So basically you can get extra information of entity pairs and you can add that information to your network. So he believes yeah. that that's kind of the route. So, but again, in my opinion, both routes are very interesting. But yeah, like personally, yeah, just to give you my personal view, I would like to explore the GPT-4 LLM path uh, more. Mm -hmm. I mean, they share some common ground, uh, which is that... Uh, yeah, we should definitely see it as a component towards building better recommender systems, whatever better means. I mean, on the downside, if you, for example, would turn each 
users that you want to provide recommendations for and that kind of text that you elaborated on for uh, showing us a first approach. I mean, that might also drive you into, into scalability issues, for example, or also there might be some arguments saying, okay, but then how do you actually optimize for things on a global scale, for example, if you want to balance relevance of recommendations with, let's say, uh, the diversity of recommendations or something like that. So this is something that you might get into trouble there, but I guess the the path is not at all at its end. So we are still on our way to find out how we can make use of these systems to build better recommender systems. What I actually liked is that you brought up the uh, GNN perspective uh, because it was, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Max Welling, who was providing yes. a keynote at Rexus 2021 that was all about uh, GNNs and uh, their relationship to recommender systems. Actually, Max Welling, uh, Microsoft uh, over here in position, and now he's at Microsoft. He's, uh, ah, Max mm -hmm. is, is really, really strong. And yeah, he's one of the pioneers in graph convolution networks. Another one, another researcher that I, I like a lot is um, Petra Belikovic from DeepMind. She's doing super interesting uh, work in, in, you know, some kind of neural algorithm, algorithm. So how to, how to mix neural network with algorithms, with uh, mm -hmm. algorithms. But yeah, in general, there are many, many ideas and many paths that are very interesting. Another one, for example, is, is reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. The, you know, a, a recommender system is, is naturally a, a closed loop system, right? A, in, in, you know, you can do a, a reinforcement learning algorithm, but the problem of, of recommendation systems is that it's actually very, very difficult to do this closed loop. And, and for me, you know, I come from robotics. And in robotics, everything is closed loop, right? You have your model, the model do a prediction, then you have a sensor, and then feed, right? Like it's closed loop. Uh, mm -hmm. You actually potentially could create the same in a, in, a, in a website, right? But the problem is that you have so many dependencies, right? Like you need to have your machine learning model, you need to do the prediction, and then in real time, you need to track all the information of the user and, and kind of mm -hmm. mix it with a with a model so it's very very difficult I, i've seen just a few companies doing reinforcement learning in reco very you know very well uh, and you know it's, it's very difficult yeah i guess there are some uh, very great uh, publications also coming from from google in terms of reinforcement learning for recommender systems so also a topic that uh, people have been thinking about yeah. already uh, quite some time. So I, I remember some some YouTube papers there that were dealing with reinforcement learning for Rexus and then also several deep reinforcement learning techniques. However, what you said, I would, I would challenge it a bit. And I, so I would agree with saying that closed loops are quite the standard in recommender systems, but actually that they are also posing some kind of the problem because then you might enter several different biases that yeah. you result from, okay, users can just interact what the recommender system decided to show to them. And then it's always a bit hard to see really the ground truths of, of, of user intention and what users really like, where you then need to embed uh, more organic signals from users that were not under the influence of recommender systems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that problem actually is very, very big in media companies, right? Like uh, Netflix, for example, because if you compare, for example, something like a media company like Netflix to something like uh, an e-commerce, when you enter to Netflix, you have all of your, your pages is uh, many, many recommenders. Like, 
many, many mm -hmm. different recommenders. I, I would say except the hero row, the top row, which is typically is, is kind of done manually. Everything else is, is a recommendation system. So that, that, that's where you have this bias, the, the selection bias, right? Because you don't you don't have that many people searching. And and then in e-commerce, mm -hmm. I would say it's easier because in e-commerce people search more, right? Like you go to a big e-commerce and then it's like I want some specific food or some specific garment, right? And then you get all the all the search. So then in that case, it's kind of easy to get that unbiased information. But yeah, that's one of the biggest problems. Yeah, true point, true point. Yeah, I actually really do like these two different perspectives on the effect of LLMs and all that part that is associated with them on recommender systems. Talking less about the system, the methods and the approaches, but more about the people. What is your perception? Because I also see, I mean, you are very active on LinkedIn, providing advice, providing technical insights and your ideas, which is very beneficial for the community, I think. What is it that you would provide people who are very active in the field, maybe also getting a bit anxious about what they need to learn, where they need to skill up? What is it that you would provide Rexus researchers or Rexus practitioners as an advice from what you see and how you experience that changes? So particularly for people in research, and I, I would say I would say the content I share is typically more for what I call applied AI rather than research, mm -hmm. right? Because in research, your objective is to create performance machine learning algorithms, right? Like just, just your only objective, right? The applied AI is a little bit more broad, right? Like your objective is not just to make a good recommender system. It's, it's more like, okay, so how can you help the business with recommendations? So mm -hmm. for these people, one idea that I share a lot is this T-shaped professional profile. So a T-shaped professional is, is somebody that is, it has a very deep expertise in one or two areas. So let's say recommendation mm -hmm. system. And then it has, a, you know, general knowledge of all the areas related to your business. So for example, maybe you are, you know, the best or, or the best on your team in recommendation system, but Hopefully, you also know a little bit about energy, a little bit about computer vision, also how the business side of machine learning works. Maybe also, you know, MLOs, right? Maybe you are not the super expert, but the thing is, from your perspective as an individual, I think it's really, really powerful, right? Because you are, first of all, you are the go-to person for one area. In this case, let's say recommendations. Mm -hmm. So if someone in the team has a need, about recommendation system, this person is going to ask you. So that, that gives you a lot of leverage. But also you understand, you are not isolated on just your area of expertise. You know you know other areas, right? Like maybe, maybe for example, for recommendation system, it's also interesting to understand how a website works and, and what are the key metrics in a website like an e-commerce, right? Like how important is the usability in the business? So what are the key metrics like click-through rate or, or conversion rate or, or the churn? Like, you know, how your recommender can affect all these metrics, right? So that's the, the T-shaped professional. And then from the company point of view, if you have a team of T-shaped professional, you have the best team in the world because it's like you have like a special forces team, right? So imagine 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you have the mega expert in record, mega expert in computer vision, mega expert in NLP, mega expert in, in MLOps, right? Is that suddenly you have, you have a, like an amazing team of people that can solve any problem, right? So then this T-shaped professional, in my view, is, is what most companies want. Because it's, it's like not, not just the, the super good researcher that only knows about their area. It's more like, hey, so how can you provide value with uh, what you're super expert? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it also facilitates communication a lot because even though the Rexus expert is actually not a computer vision expert or an MLOps expert, if they know their basics, they are much more versatile when communicating with the MLOps or with the computer vision experts and sharing thought there because there is some kind of a shared knowledge or uh, let's say skill base, which acts as a bridge between these two people to then uh, yeah, solve problems much more quickly. I have to, to think about in a, in a technological manner as well. So I mean, um, these data scientists who are working in a business context and, for example, only concentrating on Jupyter Notebooks or something like that, this is not really providing the best value because you also need to think about, okay, how, for example, to create a package, how to work with Docker, how to adhere to certain MLOps principles, CI, CD, and so on and so forth, to really be able to then work along with data engineers, ML engineers, and so on and so forth, and not kind of the old image of throwing their Jupyter notebooks over the fence yeah. and leaves the stuff to other people. <laughs> That's very common, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, still a lot of room for uh, further development there for people, uh, but also for their different areas that yeah. we are talking about. Um, yeah, in terms of the uh, more broader picture of recommender systems or more general personalization, which challenges do you see for the future that uh, we ought to, to solve or to address? Well, I, I see still a, a challenge of adoption, a challenge and an opportunity there, right? Because it's very interesting. Uh, recommendation system is something that is, is being there for many years. It's not really new. And something very interesting is that a lot of companies, they claim that they have a recommender system, but then you start scratching in the surface and they don't. Actually, uh, to the point to the point that I had some meetings with with customers, and I remember one specific, like a big retailer in, in Europe, that you know we, we had to help them with with a record solution, right? And then the PM, mm-hmm. uh, my my PM came and said, Miguel, uh, yeah, I don't think these guys need our our solution because they already have a, a recommender. I mean. And I said, okay, yeah, well, let's talk with them and, and see, I don't know, see if they, we can have them so how, right? And then actually I talked with the, with the head of, of the Assange's of that company and they actually recognized that they didn't have anything. But, you know, when, when, when she talked with the PM, mm-hmm. you know, the, the PM was not able to kind of uh, go super deep into the details, into the algorithms. And at the end, it's like, you know, guys, you actually need something that what we have to offer. So it's very interesting that not mm-hmm. a lot of people are taking advantage of this solution. So I think, you know, that's an opportunity. And again, a challenge because, I, I mean, why people mm-hmm. are not adopting? That's one thing. The other thing that I think is, is very, very important and, uh, is, is the ethical part in recommendation systems. So a recommendation system can be used to provide a better experience to users. 
that if used in a, in a bad way, it can also be used to influence the behavior of people, right? And we've seen, for example, we've seen the, the scandal of Cambridge Analytica that kind of a recommender system was used to target uh, specific groups of people to vote for, for some specific candidate, right? That is ugly. And, and I think it's debate and, and it's kind of ha- happening right now yeah, with GPT-4, GPT, right? Like who's to blame? Who, who should be responsible? Actually, mm-hmm. I had a, a Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, was doing a tour in, in Europe. And actually, I think recently he was in Germany. You know, last week or so, he went to Spain and, and I was in, in the talk with him. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, he, he's, he went to the, the Congress of the, the, the US to, to ask for regulation. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the, the EU, the uh, Europe is, is doing some regulation. And then he mentioned that, no, that's too much regulation. <laughs> everybody was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> guy decide. I mean, it's, you want to regulate, like, actually, <laughs> you guys haven't seen the, his certification in, in the Congress. The lawyers and the politicians, they, they were kind of saying, well, it's the first time in history that, uh, you know, a company comes to mm-hmm. us asking us to regulate, right? Like, a lot of people, they have done their careers going after the companies, right, to, to regulate. And the companies saying, no, you, get, you are the, the, the first one that came to us, which is, wow. And then, and then you know, a, a week later, uh, Europe say, "Okay, yeah, let's do that." And the guy say, "Nope." <laughs> so I don't know. It's mm. very interesting. At first sight, it seems a bit contradicting because on one side he's saying this, on the other one he's saying this. On the other side, one might also argue that, for example, there's too few regulation in yeah. the states and too much regulation in the yeah, eu probably. so what is kind of the common ground but uh, that's also easy to say but maybe hard to define and uh, then also to to bring into uh, uh, yeah. into reality so uh, yeah but i followed that and was also getting a bit confused and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was funny yeah, but though. i think you know in general <laughs> the, you know we need to be careful with with recommendation systems in general like, i guess in any technology right it can be used to, the way I see it is it's a search engine on superpowers, right? It's like a technical solution that saves me time. When I go to an, an e-commerce, you know, it's, instead of spending half an hour, I want to spend, you know, the, uh, particularly I, I, don't, I don't like to buy a lot. I don't want to spend all the time. So for me, it's like oh, mm-hmm. five minutes and I get exactly what I want. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. In recommender systems, it's very domain or context dependent of how critical that ethical side could be. So one might say that for, let's say, retail recommendation, there is not such a great problem. But on the other side, if you, for example, are operating a marketplace and don't provide enough opportunity to be shown for your uh, smaller businesses or something like that, then you, again, have ethical concerns whereas let's say in in, in social media or news recommendations the ethical concerns are much more apparent uh, since you might let's say create division or spread hate or something like that and then of course they need to be addressed uh, much more urgently or importantly so maybe just as a short reference there, so for people who want to know more about fairness in recommendation systems, I'll look up the last episode with uh, Michael Ekstrand, where we 
actually talked a lot about fairness, which is one of the many ethical concerns one might come up in recommender systems. And yeah, I, I like what you say. I mean, it's kind of with every technology that it should be used with care, such it is with recommender systems. Yeah, Miguel, thanks for sharing all these great thoughts and uh, impressions that you have from your work and also on the recommenders library and all of that stuff. I mean, um, also some, some great hints for people to think about how they want to position themselves. Uh, so for example, bringing up your T-shaped data scientist or T-shaped data person, I guess that not only holds true for yeah. data scientists, but also for generally for, for people working in, in software IT or something like that. And also about the challenges regarding adoption or more broader adoption of recommender systems and the ethical concerns. You have already done to a certain degree what I always ask my guests toward the end of the episode, which is uh, if they want me to reach out to a certain person to have them as my guest or invite them to be my guest. Besides the people that we already mentioned, is there some specific person that you are having in mind that you would like me to feature or invite to the show and have on Rexperts? I mean, um, yeah, Nicolas. Nicolas Hag is, is a super nice guy. Definitely really, really good. And, and Nicolas is very handsome, right? That's he's a great, great, great developer. And... You know, people in um, Microsoft Research, not sure how easy that is, but, you know, there are a couple of, like, one of the maintainers of recommenders is uh, Yan Shun Lian. Uh, he's really, really good. He's one of the best researchers uh, I know. And, and his manager is, is Xixie. Xing is amazing. Yeah, this, this, any of these three, not sure how easy it will be to, to get them, but, I mean, these are fantastic. Okay, great. So I will do my best and, and reach out uh, to have them or provide them the opportunity to also get on board of this podcast. Um, yeah, so Miguel, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your thoughts with the Recommender Systems community. It was a great talk and great tour de horizon. Yeah, thank you, Marcel. Super nice interview. Thanks. So Bye. have a nice day. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. If you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing and make sure not to miss the next episode because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. Goodbye.